If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And on the 7th of October, the prison inmates brought, broke out of the prison. The Arab-Israeli conflict was made in Britain. Was the right and on the wall uh, already there for, for, for Jews in the region? My mother used to talk at great length about the wonderful Muslim friends that we had in Baghdad. Really? Karkukli planted three of the five bombs. The most famous bomb was the bomb, a hand grenade that was lobbed into the Sauda um, uh, Shem Tov synagogue. The Druze thrived under the Ottoman Empire. Marilyn Monroe wrote in her scrapbook, nationalism stops us thinking. Why did Britain give such uh, an open promise uh, for a Jewish homeland? I'll answer your question. Israel is a racist state. Your wife is the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George. Sir Keir Starmer is one example of a wider phenomenon, which is Western hypocrisy on Israel-Palestine. There is the master Zionist narrative, Today we are confronting nothing short of a campaign of ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians of Gaza, not seen since the Nakba or catastrophe of 1948. Yet many in the Western world are silent to the suffering. 
Much of what justifies Israel and its actions in the West is premised on history, and many European and American historians have been ready to present a compelling argument for Zionism and the case for Israel in the heart of the Middle East. This historical justification based on persecution and anti-Semitism gives the story of Israel a potency that has for many years served to find acceptance in the West, of impunity to act without restraint that is not offered to any other state. At the same time, the Palestinian story has been undermined by these same historians. They were a Bedouin community readily able to vacate their land, it is said. Palestinians, according to leading Israeli politicians, are a mythical people. Today, we are honoured to have Professor Avi Shalem with us to untangle the historical facts from fiction. Avi Shalem is an eminent historian. He is an emeritus professor of international relations at Oxford University and the author of The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World. Professor Shalem is a dual Israeli-British citizen who has lived in the country as a child. His family originate from Iraq and migrated to the newly founded state in 1950. Professor Avishalem, welcome to The Thinking Muslim. I'm grateful to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's wonderful for you to, uh, to be with us today. Now, Professor Shalem, one of the narratives that justify Israel in the Middle East uh, is the persecution of the Jewish Arabs in the region. I think more than 260,000 Jews migrated to Israel in the 1950s from the Arab world. How real was this persecution? Did the Muslim world have a Jewish problem? There is a Zionist master narrative which says that Jews faced persecution uh, in the Arab world, that anti-Semitism was pervasive and endemic uh, in the Arab world, and that in the aftermath of the Holocaust, uh, the Jews had nowhere to go, and the newly born state of Israel provided a safe haven uh, for Jews facing persecution uh, anywhere, and that uh, the newly born state of Israel was where the Jews who were being persecuted in the Arab uh, world ended up in. Mm. This is the Zionist master narrative, and it's a simplification of the actual history. The actual history uh, is one of uh, Muslim-Jewish coexistence and harmony uh, through the ages. Mm. This is not to deny that there has been, there was anti-Semitism in the Arab world or the Islamic world, yeah. but to say that the scale um, of anti-Semitism was greatly exaggerated by the Zionist narrative. Yeah. Uh, because anti-Semitism is a European malady. It's from Europe that anti-Semitism was uh, transplanted to the Middle East. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that there was no uh, anti-Semitic literature in Arabic. Really? So uh, with the spread of anti-Semitism from Europe to the Middle East, 
anti-Semitic literature had to be translated from Arabic, from uh, European languages into Arabic. And a prime example is Hitler's autobiography, uh, Mein Kampf. Yeah. So anti-Semitism was a European malady. Um, and the Middle East did not have a Jewish problem in inverted commas. Yeah. Europe had a Jewish problem. Yeah. In Europe, Jews were the other. They were singled out. Um, they were the other. Uh, in, the, in the Arab world, in Iraq in particular, where I come from, Iraq didn't have a Jewish problem. Um, in Iraq, there were many minorities. There were uh, Christians, there were Chaldeans, the Turkmans, the Circassians, the Jews. Yeah. The Jews were one minority among many, and there was a long tradition of um, religious tolerance and of coexistence between the different minorities. So that was, for the most part, the reality, mm. but it's not to deny that there, were, and there was anti-Semitism, especially in the aftermath of the, um, of the First World War, in the 1930s, there was a, a spread of anti-Semitic propaganda throughout the Middle East. Now, Professor Shalem, you were born in Iraq and your family were a wealthy family in fact, had been well integrated into, into Iraq for, for many generations. Uh, yet your family moved to Israel in the 1950s. I think something like 100,000 Jews uh, left is uh, Iraq uh, in in that decade? Uh, why did that happen? And can you expand on what you call cruel Zionism? Uh, I was born in Baghdad in 1945, hmm. uh, and in 1950 my family moved to Israel. Uh, we were a very wealthy, upper middle class family. We were very privileged. Uh, we had a very um, luxurious uh, lifestyle uh, in Iraq, mm -hmm. but much more importantly, we were Arab Jews. Um, we were Iraqis whose religion happened to be Jewish. Uh, and we were Arab Jews. We spoke Arabic at home. Um, our customs were... Um, Arab customs, mm -hmm. uh, and um, we lived uh, in harmony with our environment. My parents had many um, Muslim friends, mm -hmm. um, and the context was one of coexistence between the different uh, minorities. Mm -hmm. um, moreover, uh, we as Jews had very deep roots uh, in Iraq. Our roots went back to the Babylonian exile of um, two and a half millennia ago. So we were not newcomers. Right. We were not intruders. Yes. We had been there long before the rise of uh, Islam. Uh, Zionism was a European idea. Right. Zionism was a movement by European Jews for European Jews. Mm. 
because of anti-Semitism in Europe, but um, Theodor Herzl, the visionary of the Jewish state, came up with a solution to the Jewish problem in Europe, which mm. is an independent Jewish state. Mm. Um, uh, once my mother used to talk at great length about the wonderful Muslim friends that we had in Baghdad. Really? And one day I asked her, did we have any Zionist friends? And she said, no, uh, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. Hmm. It's nothing to do uh, with us. Um, so Zionism took off in the interwar period um, and persecution of the Jews um, fed the immigration of Jews from Europe to Palestine, especially after the rise to power of the Nazi party in Germany in 1933. Um, uh, yeah. uh, and we in the Jews in Iraq had no affinity with the Zionist idea. Right. Um, it meant nothing to us, mm. and we had no interest in leaving our country and moving to uh, Israel. It's circumstances beyond our control that forced us to leave Iraq and to go uh, to Israel. Right. Um, and when I say circumstances, I mean two things in particular. I mean the rise of Arab nationalism mm. uh, and the, um, then the rise of Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Mm. And we were caught in the crossfire between these two national movements. Mm. And the fact that the Zionists in Palestine had embarked on the systematic takeover of the country and the expulsion of the Palestinians from Palestine exacerbated Arab hostility towards the Jews in the East. Mm -hmm. The turning point was 1948, mm -hmm. the war for Palestine, the first Arab-Israeli war. The Iraqi army took part in the war for Palestine. At the end of the war, after the guns fell silent, Israel signed um, peace, not peace, I'm sorry, Israel signed armistice agreements with all its neighbors, yeah. but Iraq did not sign an armistice agreement, it just withdrew from the Palestine theater. Mm -hmm. So officially, Iraq and Israel are still um, uh, at war. And in the aftermath of the 48 war, in the aftermath of the Nakba, there was a backlash against Jews in all the, throughout the Middle East, in all the Arab countries, mm. and there was a backlash against the Jews uh, in Iraq. And that's when official persecution of the Jews began, in the aftermath of the de defeat. Mm. The Jews were used as a scapegoat for both the Arab defeat in Palestine, but also for the failures of the Iraqi government domestically uh, uh, at home. Yeah. So the Jews who had been um, 
positive element in Iraqi society were increasingly perceived as a fifth column, and Arab nationalists who um, were anti-Semitic, yeah. who didn't like Jews, would say to Jews, you don't belong here, you're aliens, mm -hmm. which they couldn't have said before. Yes. So Zionism changed things. Zionism gave a territorial dimension um, to the Jews for the first time in two and a half millennia. Mm -hmm. And it now became easier for Arab nationalists like the Istiklal party mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq to uh, denounce the Jews, to call for their expulsion and to call for the, the, um, the um, sequestration of, of the assets. And to underscore this growing insecurity faced, uh, that was uh, faced by Iraqi Jews, uh, there were a series of bombings that targeted Jewish communities across Baghdad and, and beyond. Uh, what has your research told you about the origin of this violence? In um, March 1950, the Iraqi government passed the law okay. which said that any Jew who wants to leave the country is free to do so. Um, they have a year to register and they can leave, leave on a one-way visa. Right. But the only place that the Jews who wanted to leave uh, Iraq could go to was to Israel. Um, uh, only a few thousand Jews took advantage of this new law, right. the overwhelming majority wanted to stay because this was their country. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, in 1950, there were roughly 135,000 Jews in Iraq, oh. a substantial Very number. Much. Yeah. By the end of 1952, only about 10,000 Jews stayed and something like 125,000 Jews um, had gone to Israel. Yeah. <clears throat> and the experience of individuals in Israel varied, but for the community as a whole, for the Jewish community as a whole, the experience was traumatic. It's like a tree being pulled up by uh, the roots. Mm. So um, not many Jews took advantage of the new law. Yeah. And in the next year, five bombs exploded in Jewish sites in Iraq and created a panic. Uh, and this panic contributed to the mass exodus of uh, the Jews. Yeah. Uh, as a boy growing up in Israel, I always heard um, rumors that Israel was involved in the bombs, that Israel um, was responsible for the bombs and with the aim of frightening the Jews and uh, forcing them to move to Israel, whether they wanted to or not. Mm. These were the rumors. Yeah. And I was always interested in this question. Um, and when I grew up and when I became a historian, uh, and I spent a year in the Israel State Archives in 1981-82. Mm. 
I, I wanted to get to the bottom of this story. Yes. Uh, and one day I ordered the files uh, on Iraq 1950, um, uh, and I was told they were not, they were closed. And I said to the state archivist, but more than 30 years have passed. Yes. And Israel has a 30-year rule for the review and declassification of official records. Uh, I said to him, more than 30 years have passed, so why don't you release? And he said, I'll look into it. And he came back to me and he said, um, there are some Mossad documents <laughs> in the file. Right. Uh, that's why it hasn't been opened. And I thought, aha, <laughs> the Mossad documents. Right. Uh, so there is incriminating evidence. Yes. So I said to the state archivist, why don't you go through the file um, and remove the Mossad documents and leave the documents of the foreign ministry? Yeah. And he said, I'll check. And the following day he came back to me and he said, it's not possible. Yeah. Uh, none of the documents can be um, released. Uh, and then I thought to myself, um, I, said, I said to him, you must be hiding something. There must be incriminating evidence. And he said, I read the entire file and I assure you that there is no <laughs> incriminating uh, evidence. Yes. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a historian. Yeah. And I didn't have any evidence pointing to Israeli culpability. Yes. But uh, th this issue continue to interest me uh, and um, when I was working on my uh, autobiography, uh, I met an elderly Iraqi named Yaakov Karkukli, a friend of my mother's who lived in Ramad Gan, where many Iraqi Jews lived. Mm. And Yaakov Karkukli um, was uh, active in the Zionist underground in Iraq. And he told me in great detail about their activities, how they forge documents, how they pay bribe to officials, how they organize first the illegal Jewish immigration through Iran to Israel, and later, after the 1950 law was passed, the legal immigration to uh, Israel. Mm. Uh, so he told me about their activities in the underground, and he told me that he had one colleague who was a very smart lawyer. Uh, his name was uh, uh, Yusef Basri, um, and he was an ardent Zionist, and he had gone to Israel after 1950, but was sent back by um, uh, Israeli intelligence to Baghdad, as a spy and to organize um, the um, Aliyah, the migration, immigration to Israel. Yes. And as, this is according to Kukli, as there was very little take-up of the offer to leave voluntarily, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, Kukli planted three of the five bombs. Wow. The most famous bomb was the bomb, a hand grenade that was lobbed into the Sauda 
Shem Tov synagogue, and that killed four people. Mm-hmm. And that was um, the most traumatic event which uh, sparked the mass exodus. Um, Basri wasn't responsible for that. And there was another uh, bomb, that another hand grenade that was lobbed by a member of the Istiklal party, which was very anti-Jewish. But according to Kalkukli, um, um, yeah, uh, his colleague was responsible for three of the bombs. Wow. And that he acted under orders from an officer in Israeli intelligence named Max Binet, who was based in Tehran. In those days, the Shah's Iran had close covert relations uh, with the state of Israel. So uh, uh, Max Binet is the one who provided um, the instructions, the information, and the um, TNT, the explosives, to Kakukli, who carried out three of the bombs. Um, uh, Basri was caught with his assistant uh, and uh, they were tortured and uh, they were uh, brought to trial. They were convicted uh, and uh, convicted to death by hanging. But it was a proper trial with proper evidence and the foreign press and representatives from all the embassies were invited to attend. Mm. So it wasn't a show trial. Mm. And interestingly, uh, um, Basri was not accused of all the five bombs, but only the ones that he had perpetrated uh, himself. Yes. So I said to Kukli, I believe you, and this fits in with all the evidence that I have, but that's not enough. Um, I need concrete, ev- hard evidence. Mm-hmm. And one day he produced hard evidence in the form of a one-page police report, yeah. which gave details of the interrogation of Basri and his assistant. And the information in this page could have only come from an inside source. No one outside the police could have known it. But um, the problem with this page is that uh, it was typed in Arabic on plain paper with no date, with no name, with no official uh, letter heading, with no subject line. It was just the text reporting details of the interrogation. Um, so... This wasn't exactly um, a smoking gun, hmm. but it was hard evidence. Yes. And one day I managed to make contact with a, an Iraqi journalist who had written a book in Arabic on the Zionist underground in Iraq and the migration of the Jews to, to Israel in 1950-51. Hmm. Uh, and... Uh, this journalist, Shamil Abdul Kader, um, confirmed 
that the page I have is from a police report, and it's a much longer police report, 258 pages, mm. which he has, but he wasn't willing to give me access. But he confirmed that all the information in the page that I have comes from the police report. Wow. So I now can say um, with confidence that I have found incontrovertible evidence of Israeli involvement in the uh, bombings in Baghdad that uh, precipitated the mass exodus to Israel. My critics say to me um, that I exaggerate the impact of the bombs, that the real reason uh, for the mass exodus was persecution, mm. anti-Semitism. Mm. Uh, and the Jews had started registering to leave before um, the bombing in the synagogue. Yes. And my answer to my critics is that even if I knew that the uh, Jewish-inspired bombs did not result in one Jew leaving the country, I would still condemn this operation. I would still condemn it because Israel was created to provide a safe haven for Jews. Israel was not created in order to... Uh, it was not established in order to make Jews insecure and unsafe in the countries uh, in which they lived. And these bombs were directed against civilians, not against the foreign army. Uh, that's why I call this cruel Zionism. Thank you. That's a really an amazing journey as a, as a historian. Now, these false flag operations were not isolated to Iraq, uh, but also uh, they occurred across the Middle East. Can you please expand on or explain these attempts uh, uh, undertaken by Mossad, undertaken by Israeli intelligence, and I suppose the ultimate aim behind them? The most famous case of uh, an Israeli false flag operation occurred in Cairo in 1954. Right. Uh, this is known is the Lavon affair, because Pinchas Lavon was the Minister of Defense uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, an Israeli intelligence officer yeah. named Max Binet mm. um, was in charge of the operation. And there was a cell of local Jews, Egyptian Jews, operating under his instructions. Um, and uh, one day, a member of this cell wanted to explode um, a set off a bomb in a cinema in Cairo, right. but it went off prematurely with smoke, so he was arrested and the whole cell was rounded up including Max uh, Binet. Mm. And the aim of this false flag operation was to create bad blood between the Nasser regime 
that had just come to power after the revolution in 1952. Mm -hmm. The aim was to create bad blood between uh, the Nasser regime and the West. Right. And Britain still had um, a major pr military presence in the Suez Canal zone, and Britain had negotiated an agreement uh, with the Egyptian government to vacate this base. And one major aim of the Nasser revolution was to get rid of colonial presence on their country. Yeah. And the aim of the Israeli false flag operation was to say to the West, uh, na the Nasser regime cannot be trusted, and therefore they should maintain their presence, colonial presence, uh, uh, in Egypt. Yeah. Th that was the aim. But the operation backfired, mm. uh, and um, um, Max Binet is the same officer who had been responsible for the bombs in Baghdad, yeah. and he committed suicide in uh, prison in Cairo yeah. after he had heard that the Iraqi government asked for his extradition. So there is a link between the two operations. They're separate operations, but they're both part of a pattern of false flag operations. And um, Pinchas Lavon, who denied the or that he had given the order to activate the ring in um, um, Cairo, mm. said in evidence to an Israeli commission of inquiry that these false flag operations, they were stupid mm. and inhuman. Uh, and it all started in Baghdad in 1950. Um, now, I call this both operations cruel Zionism yeah, yeah. because they involved recruiting decent local Jews, indoctrinating them into Zionism, mm. and getting them to act as spies against the country, but were still turning decent local Jews into terrorists who plant bombs in order to frighten other Jews mm. to leave the country. Um, so, um, uh, to answer your question, yeah. uh, uh, that's why I call it cruel Zionism, yeah. because this had very se serious consequences for the um, Jewish community in Egypt. It's not just that it backfired and it failed, yeah. and it didn't achieve any of its objectives, but there was a Jewish community in Egypt uh, and now Egyptians started to question their loyalty to the country. They started seeing local Jews as a threat to Egypt's security, uh, and that had very unfortunate consequences for Muslim-Jewish uh, relations in Egypt, and it had done in Iraq before. You are a, uh, a historian of international relations, and... Um... Iraq, your mother country, is today riven by sectarian violence, uh, maybe as a byproduct of, of U.S. occupation. Uh, but across the Middle East, you're seeing uh, a very tumultuous uh, period of, of history. I suppose, could Jews have survived this post-Ottoman nationalistic Middle East? Was the writing on the wall uh, already there for, for, for Jews in the region? The Jews thrived under the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. 
the Ottoman Empire, for all its faults, was a multi-ethnic, um, multilingual empire, yeah. uh, which allowed a very high degree of religious and civil autonomy to all the minorities. Yeah. So it was quite a flexible framework for the region. There were open borders. You can travel from everywhere to anywhere you wanted within the uh, empire. And each community was left in peace to run its own affairs according to its own laws and customs. Mm. Uh, so the Jews, like all the other minorities, did well under this system. And um, the logic of uh, the Ottoman Empire was pluralism. And each community could maintain do, um, multiple loyalties. They could have loyalty to the Sultan, loyalty to the Ottoman Empire, but also loyalty to their own uh, community. What happened after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire was that uh, uh, the colonial powers, Britain and France, built a new order which didn't suit the region. Uh, and the hallmark of the post-Ottoman uh, order in the Middle East was lack of legitimacy. Mm. The rulers lacked legitimacy because they were handpicked by the British and the French. Yeah. Um, the political system lacked legitimacy because there was no democracy and there was no freedom. And the borders of the new states lack legitimacy because they cut across genuine societies. They were artificial borders drawn by the colonial powers. So the hallmark of this whole order was um, lack of legitimacy, and it's what I call the post-Ottoman syndrome, which has resulted in never-ending strife uh, conflicts, bloodshed, and war that continues to this day. Today, we see the consequence of that order in um, in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Could the Jews have um, uh, survived um, and after the end of the Ottoman Empire yeah. in the Arab world? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Mm. I think the answer is yes. But everything changed because the logic of the new system, the logic of the new order was nationalism. Yeah. So what, and you could only have one identification to your nation. And nationalism is a very divisive and destructive force. It's yeah. not a positive force. Yes. Uh, Patriotism is different. Patriotism is one of one's love of one's country. Mm. For nationalism, you, you need an enemy. Um, and as Marilyn Monroe wrote in her scrapbook, nationalism stops us thinking. Mm. Uh, and this is my gloss on what she said. <laughs> nationalism stops us relating to one another as human beings. And, and that is what happened. And in Palestine, 
um, uh, you couldn't have dual loyalty, uh, multiple loyalties. You're either an Arab or a Jew. Yeah. And Britain and the conflict started there. Yeah. The Arab-Israeli conflict um, was made in Britain. So let's talk about the current crisis. And, and there is a, uh, a perception that there is a, a racial dimension to the conflict. Many Palestinians are looked down as being inferior and their lives are seen to be of less meaning uh, to, to wider Israeli society. Uh, is it fair to call the Israeli state project a racial enterprise? Um, and, and, you know, is that a historically acceptable label to give to, to Zionism? I'll begin by saying that the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, is not about religion and not about race. Essentially, it's a clash between two national movements, right. uh, um, Palestinian nationalism and, and Zionism. There are two peoples and one land. Mm. That's what the conflict is essentially about. But then there are other layers to this conflict, um, and um, religion became an increasingly important factor in what was had been a secular uh, conflict mm. on on both sides. Yeah. Religion became a more important factor, uh, and the combination of religion and politics is a very explosive mixture. Mm. And Hamas is the Islamic resistance movement. Mm. So Islam is central to this uh, movement. It's not peripheral. And Israel, at the same time, has, becoming, has become more and more of a Jewish state, and uh, I would say a Jewish supremacist state. Mm. Uh, and religion has become a more important factor in shaping Israeli policy towards the Palestinians, yeah. and, and, and indeed towards the Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. I'll give you, uh, uh, I'll answer your question. Israel is a racist state. Really? Um, and the evidence for that is the uh, July 2018 Jewish nation state law, which says that the Jewish people have a unique right to self-determination within the state of Israel. Uh, for unique, read exclusive. Right. And it means that the nearly 2 million Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, mm. about a fifth of the population, they have no national rights. So this law creates two classes of citizens, Jews who are superior and Palestinians, citizens of the state of Israel, who are inferior and don't enjoy uh, the same rights. Yeah. Uh, Israel, because of this law, mm. Israel, I consider Israel, or because of this law, Israel may be said to be the only officially racist state, um, the only officially racist state 
member of the United Nations. Right. There are many other racist countries, yes. but they don't officially say that they are racist. Yes. But uh, this is not everything. Israel continued to move in the direction of racism, of overt racism. Mm. Look at the present government, which is headed by Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, this government, its um, policy guidelines, every government which has to be um, approved by the Knesset has to present its program, the policy guidelines. Mm. And the policy guidelines of the present Netanyahu government um, say that the Jewish people have an exclusive right to self-determination in the whole land of Israel. So now it says, not unique, but exclusive. Um, and it says that the Jewish people have an exclusive right to self-determination, not just within the state of Israel, but within the whole land of Israel, yeah. which includes the, the West Bank. Mm. So um, the short answer to your question is, yes, Israel is, is a racist project. Can I ask you about um, Palestine or Palestinians as a, as a group of, of people? There are many Israelis who argue that uh, Palestinians as an entity are a mythical people. I mean, how rooted were the Palestinians to what we call Palestine uh, in 1948? The Arabs had lived in Palestine for centuries. Yes. Uh, until the beginning of uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine. Uh, and the turning point was the Balfour Declaration mm. of 1917, mm. which promised British support for a Jewish national home uh, in Palestine. Um, and this was a classical colonial document. Mm. In 1917, uh, the Jews were 10% of the population. Yeah. The Arabs were 90%. The Jews owned 2% of the land, and yet uh, Britain chose to allocate national rights to the Jewish minority and to deny it to the Arab uh, uh, majority. Right. Uh, and Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was this British commitment and support for the Zionist movement that enabled, that enabled the Zionist movement to embark on the systematic takeover of Palestine, a process that continues to this day with the expansion of Jewish settlements um, on the West Bank. Mm. So um, there was an Arab community, well-established, well-rooted Arab community in Palestine going back centuries before the rise of um, uh, Zionism and the state of Israel. Yeah. One argument about um, Palestinian nationalism mm. is that it's not genuine nationalism. Mm. It only developed in response to the Zionist project in Palestine. Yeah. But there is nothing unusual about it. Most nationalisms are not positive movements. Yeah. They arise in opposition to something else. Yeah. So the Palestinian nationalism is uh, nothing unusual, and it uh, really took off the ground in the aftermath of the First World War, but it's still a very genuine national movement, um, and the, the PLO used to represent that national movement. Yeah. Um, and Hamas today is the main representative of Palestinian nationalism, and resistance to the occupation. Uh, so you've raised there the Balfour Declaration. Uh, this was a, a letter written by Arthur Balfour, the foreign secretary in the then coalition government in the United Kingdom. Uh, why did Britain give such uh, an open promise uh, for a Jewish homeland? What was uh, their ultimate motivation behind that? I believe that the Balfour Declaration was based on a misperception, right. on a mistake. Uh, and the driving force behind the Balfour Declaration was not Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour, but Prime Minister uh, David Lloyd George. Mm. David Lloyd George believed that the Jews were a uniquely uh, influential people that they had uh, covert power, uh, that they um, um, made the wheels of history turn. Uh, and by issuing this declaration, uh, Britain would gain uh, a strategic partner uh, in the war against Germany. Uh, and um, uh, this view in itself was anti-Semitic, <laughs> that the Jews enjoyed covert financial power around the world, that the Jews uh, were so influential. Mm. Um, uh, uh, but it was an exaggeration. But the truth of the matter was that the Jews were a minority in Britain and everywhere. Mm. And the Zionists were a tiny minority within 
the Jewish community uh, in Britain. Yeah. And it's really important to understand that the mainstream Jewish community in Britain was opposed to uh, Zionism. Mm. There was only one Jewish member of Lloyd George's government, yeah. and that was Sir Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India. Mm. And on the 23rd of August, 1917, uh, three months before the Balfour Declaration was issued, Montague submitted a memorandum, four-page memorandum, to the British cabinet yeah. under the heading the anti the anti-Semitism of the present government. Wow. Uh, and this is the first and major Jewish statement against Zionism. Yeah. And Montague began by saying the Jews Judaism is a religion. It's not a nation. There are Jews who live all around the world, they speak different languages, they have different cultures, yeah. and therefore it doesn't make sense to have a Jewish state in Palestine. Mm. Moreover, if there is a Jewish state in Palestine, it would undercut, it would undermine the struggle for equal rights for Jews in this country and in Europe and everywhere else. Yeah. Because if there is a Jewish state in Palestine, anyone who didn't like Jews will say to the Jews, if you don't like here, if you don't like it here, why don't you go to your own country? Mm -hmm. So th this is a very important it is, yeah. and little known document yeah. which shows that uh, the uh, Jewish community as a whole, the mainstream, did not support the Zionist uh, project. And uh, the Balfour Declaration, when viewed not from the Zionist side, uh, but when viewed from the point of view of British interest, was a colossal strategic blunder. Really? Because it alienated the Arabs, it alienated the Muslim world, um, uh, and if Britain had... Uh, wanted a strategic ally, uh, then um, it should have been the Arabs mm. who were already its ally during the First World War. But Britain was very cynical and in the course of fighting the First World War, Britain made three incompatible promises. In 1915, it promised Hussein the Sharif of Mecca um, in return for mounting an Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. They promised him an independent Arab kingdom under his rule at the end of the war. Uh, the following year, in 1916, Britain signed a secret treaty with France, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, in which uh, the colonial powers divided the Middle East into zones of influence between themselves. Yeah. So this clearly contradicted the promise of an independent Arab uh, kingdom. 
but they couldn't agree on Palestine. So Palestine was not in either sphere of influence. It was to have a separate international administration. But worse was to come. In 1917, Britain issued the Balfour Declaration, um, pledging its support for the Zionist uh, cause. Um, now, the difference, uh, and Britain completely let down Hussein the Sharif of Mecca and reneged on its prom pro promise of an independent Arab kingdom. Mm. But there is a difference between the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration. Mm. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was never implemented. Lloyd George uh, reneged on it. <laughs> but the uh, Balfour Declaration was implemented. Uh, and in 1922, it was Britain which wrote the, which incorporated the Balfour Declaration into the League of Nations mandate in Palestine. Mm. So what had been a vague British promise to the Zionists became uh, an international instrument, and Britain had as the mandatory power to help, to, to help the emergence of uh, a national home for the Jews in Palestine. The Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration are um, the guiding themes, uh, the central themes of Arab nationalists to this day. Um, they are still relevant at the symbolic level. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was um, a symbol of colonial indifference to Arab rights and Arab aspirations. It was a symbol of the colonial powers carving up the territory for their own selfish ends. Mm. And the Balfour Declaration represents, um, is a symbol of the European colonial powers introducing a foreign body uh, uh, a, a Jewish state into the midst of the Middle East mm. and Arabs to this day believe that this was deliberate to create a Jewish state in the middle in the heartland of the Arab world in order to divide and weaken the Arabs and in order to uh, defeat uh, Arab nationalism um, I'd like to make one other point Please. if I may yes the League of Nations mandate for Palestine was unique. Mm. There were four mandates. Yeah. The League of Nations gave France the mandate um, for Syria mm. and the mandate for, Libya, for um, Lebanon. Mm. And it gave Britain two mandates, the mandate for Iraq and the mandate for Palestine. Right. All the other, all th the three mandates, uh, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq called on the mandatory power to prepare the country for independence, for self-rule, and when the country was ready to hand over power to the locals. Mm -hmm. The Palestine mandate was different <laughs> because 
because the Balfour Declaration was incorporated into um, the mandate, Britain was now obliged um, to turn Palestine into a national home for the Jewish people, not, not to prepare the locals for self-government, but to, pre to uh, prepare Palestine to be taken over by Jews from all over the world, and especially from Europe. In this sense, um, the Palestine mandate was unique, and that encapsulates the deep, deep injustice, the fundamental injustice that the British mandate uh, involved towards the local population. So can I, can I ask you about David Lloyd George? Uh, he was the Prime Minister at the time, and he's known to be an ardent uh, Christian Zionist. How much did his religious views impact uh, his uh, attitude, I suppose, towards Arabs and ultimately towards uh, the Balfour Declaration and, and the creation of a Jewish state? Uh, David Lloyd George um, uh, had um, biblical education, mm. which he used to invoke in relation to foreign policy. He knew all the biblical names for present-day uh, Palestine. Uh, and he said that he was influenced by his sympathy for the Jewish people to issue the Balfour Declaration. But I completely dismiss this right. as irrelevant. Yeah. Lloyd, David Lloyd George was a radical at home, but he was an old-fashioned British imperialist abroad and a land grabber. Uh, and all his decisions uh, uh, relating to the Balfour Declaration were cynical imperial calculations. Yeah. But he was wrong about the influence of the Jews. Uh, and Britain was saddled with this commitment to a Jewish national home, which uh, really hobbled Britain in the interwar period and soured its relations with um, um, the Arabs. So it's not just David Lloyd George. Yeah. Uh, there is a view that uh, biblical romanticism mm. was the driving force behind the Balfour Declaration. And uh, it may have existed in British society in general, but it wasn't a serious motive for the British policymakers. Right. And therefore, I completely reject the notion, which is, still persistent to this day yeah. in some quarters, I completely reje reje re reject the notion that the Balfour Declaration was a noble Christian project to enable an ancient people mm. to rebuild its national home on its ancestral homeland. And, and can I ask, I mean, you, your wife is the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George. Um, what's, her, what's her views on... Uh, on the Balfour Declaration, but also on, on Palestine today. My wife is a great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George, mm. uh, and she's very proud of him and of his radical uh, agenda and his radical uh, achievement yeah. in home affairs. Um, but she's um, extremely embarrassed by the Balfour Declaration. Really? Um, and she is a pro-Palestinian activist, 
She's very active in um, promoting the Palestinian cause. Yeah. Um, uh, and But when she goes to the West Bank and she meets with Palestinians, she uh, likes to, she doesn't, she's very acutely embarrassed by her uh, ancestry. So her attitude towards Lloyd George is ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Admiration for his radicalism on the one hand uh, and uh, deep uh, disappointment and uh, anger for the support that he gave to Zionism and for the Balfour Declaration in particular. Thank you. Can I ask you about the Nakba in 1948? Um, now, Israel presents a narrative that it was largely done through mass migration for immigration and voluntary dispersal of the Palestinians. What, what's the truth behind that episode? There is the master Zionist narrative which says that in 1947 the UN voted for the partition of Palestine mm. uh, into two states, one Arab, one Jewish. Um, the Arabs rejected partition and went to war to frustrate partition, yeah. and they were defeated uh, in that war. Yeah. And in the course of the war, the Palestinians left Palestine. They left um, on orders from above uh, and in the expectation of a triumphal uh, return. So Israel is not responsible for the Palestinian refugee problem. Uh, three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees, mm. not a small number, more than half the population. And I'm a new historian, yeah. um, so-called new historian. Yes. Yeah. Um, the three original uh, new historians are Benny Morris, Ilan Pape, and myself. Mm. Uh, and in 1988, the three of us published books on what happened in 1948. Ilan Pape's book uh, challenges the Zionist claim that towards the end of the mandate, Britain's aim was to frustrate the birth of a Jewish state, that Britain armed and incited its Arab uh, allies to invade Palestine upon end of the mandate yeah. and frustrate the birth of a Jewish state. Ilan Pape shows that Britain's real aim was to frustrate the birth of a Palestinian state. Yeah. Um, so there is a case against Britain at the end of the mandate, but not that it tried to prevent the birth of a Jewish state, but that it uh, succeeded in um, preventing the birth, aborting the birth of a Palestinian state. Yeah. Uh, Benny Morris wrote The Birth of the Palestinian refugee problem, 1947 and 1949. This book is based on meticulous uh, research in the Israeli archives. Mm. And the conclusion is that there are many reasons for the um, uh, Palestinian exodus, but the main reason was Jewish um, 
uh, economic, political, military, and psychological pressure. In other words, the refugee problem had many causes, but the main cause was Israeli actions. And there are many, many examples there of, of um, um, uh, expulsion of, of uh, Palestinians. It wasn't voluntary. Yeah. Uh, so the Zionist narrative is that the Palestinians left, and Benny Morris shows that they were, didn't leave of their own accord, that they were uh, pushed out. Uh, I would actually use the phrase ethnic cleansing. Really? There was no Zionist master plan for the expulsion of the Palestinians, mm. but there was a very definite um, aim of getting rid of as many Palestinians as possible. Right. And if you look at the outcome, regardless of the intentions, the outcome is that three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees, yeah. and the name Palestine was um, was wiped off the map. The term ethnic cleansing didn't exist then, but I think it applies. Mm. And I agree with Ilan Pape, who wrote another book, which is called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Yes. Uh, th that is the Nakba. Um, my own book uh, was called Collusion Across the Jordan. Mm. Uh, King Abdallah, the Zionist movement, and the partition of Palestine. Mm. And in this book, I advance a main thesis, which is that by 1947, King Abdallah of Jordan um, and the Jewish agency reached a tacit agreement to divide Palestine uh, not into an Arab state and a Jewish state, but to divide Palestine between themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. Wow. And this was indeed the outcome of the 1948 war. King Abdallah's army invaded Palestine, captured the West Bank, the heartland of what was to be the Palestinian state, and later incorporated into it into his kingdom and Israel extended its borders beyond those um, uh, granted by the UN uh, cartographers. The losers were the Palestinians, and they were left out in the cold. So, so my book um, upturns the whole historiography yeah. of the Arab-Israeli conflict yeah. in the first half of the 20th century. The conventional narrative is that it was a straightforward bipolar um, uh, conflict between Jews on the one hand uh, and uh, the, uh, all the Arab world on the other hand. Yeah. Whereas I argue that below the surface, the real lineup was between Hashemite rulers of Jordan and Zionists on the one hand yeah. against the Palestinians and Arab nationalists uh, on the other hand. So um, th this is, the, in a nutshell, the new history my colleagues and I, between us, lo launched a frontal attack <laughs> on all the myths that have come to surround the birth of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli war.
Can we discuss the current slaughter? I suppose we can call it that of of Gazans. Um, it's now been three months, and uh, it's clear to you and I that there is a a form of ethnic cleansing taking place, similar to to that of the Nakba in nineteen forty eight. Um, I want to ask you a question about history and historians. I mean, are you confident that in the future, historians will look back and see these events? in the same way you and I see them. Uh, I suppose I'm asking the question, um, is all history essentially a politicised version of, of history? No. Uh, there is a difference between good history and bad history. Right. And bad history uh, is a history with a political axe to grind, mm. uh, where the agenda dominates the research and the writing. Yeah. And good history is more detached, uh, more objective uh, 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 history. But you're right in saying that the historian doesn't operate in a vacuum. True. The historian is a member of his society. Yeah. The historian addresses the questions that are current at the time of, um, of writing. Mm. Um, and I have no way of knowing how future historians would look back on what's happening in Gaza today. Yeah. But I am confident on the basis of what I know that what is unfolding in front of our eyes today is ethnic cleansing, mm -hmm. the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And I would go further and say we're also seeing the beginning of um, uh, what might be called genocide. Genocide is much more extreme than ethnic cleansing. Yeah. For the ethnic cleansing, we have all the evidence that I Israel has, uh, has ordered um, the Palestinians to move from north to the, uh, the south of the street. There are 2.3 million residents in Gaza, 1.9 million have already been displaced, sometimes a second time, and some of the Palestinians who have obeyed Israeli orders are then bombed by Israeli airstrikes. Mm. Um, uh, the forcible um, movement, the forcible uh, um, coercion of civilians to move from their homes is a war crime. Yeah. So Israel is committing war crimes um, already mm. by the orders, by the displacement of the Palestinians within the Gaza Strip. But Israeli uh, uh, ambition doesn't end there. Yeah. The Israeli ambition is to get rid of as many of the Palestinians in Gaza uh, as possible. Benjamin Netanyahu, in an address to the nation, said, we are fighting our second war of independence. Mm. Uh, this is complete nonsense. It's preposterous. Mm. No one is threatening Israel's independence. That's not the issue. Uh, and behind his words, I see a veiled threat that the first war of independence was accompanied by the Nakba. Mm. Uh, and this war of independence, as he sees it, will be accompanied by another Nakba. And some Israeli leaders 
are actually talking about the second Nakba, and yeah. some of them are saying the scale of the second Nakba is going to be bigger. And this is not just speculation yeah. on my part. Um, a document of the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence dated 13 October um, um, came to light, and it has a plan for the depopulation of Gaza, mm. for uh, moving, pushing um, uh, a large amount, a large number of the Palestinians from Gaza into northern Sinai, into Egyptian territory. Obviously, Egypt is strongly opposed to any such move, but that is an Israeli ambition. And what we are noticing now is very disturbing um, genocidal rhetoric. Yeah. I think there is no precedent for this kind of open genocidal rhetoric that we are seeing today. People don't usually advertise the intention to carry out genocide. They, they try to hide it. Yeah. Whereas Israeli leaders, uh, from top to bottom, are issuing extraordinary statements. Like President Herzog says, there are no innocent people in Gaza. Well, I beg to differ. Israel has killed um, 22, over 22,000 people, nearly 10,000 children. Two-thirds of the death toll are women uh, and children. They are innocent. Uh, and yet, more and more Israeli leaders are demonizing the Palestinians, um, uh, calling for their expulsion, calling openly for ethnic cleansing. One rabbi said that Israel should drop a bomb, an atomic bomb, uh, on Gaza. Uh, and this worries me a great deal, the genocidal rhetoric, because usually demonizing the enemy uh, leads or justifies uh, extermination and uh, and uh, genocide. So this is not just loose talk. Yeah. It's very serious dehumanizing, not just of Hamas, but of the entire Palestinian Population. people. Yeah. Um, in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, there's been a, a, a ferocious debate here in the West about context. I suppose it's what you call good history. Now, the 7th of October uh, is a hotly debated uh, topic. And of course, much of what Israel has done has been justified by the 7th of October. The detractors, the, those who argue against Israel's case would suggest that there is a context to the violence of the 7th of October. Uh, how important is it uh, for us to explore that context. And what is the context behind what happened on the 7th of October? The 7th of October Hamas attack on Israel mm. um, uh, was vicious, um, was traumatic, um, and it involved, it, it involved the killing of uh, 12 hundred Israelis, mostly civilians, yeah. and taking as hostages 240 uh, others. Uh, and it was a, um, an attack on Israel 
not through um, uh, firing rockets on Israeli territory, but for the first time, it was a ground attack yeah. uh, on uh, on settlements, on uh, kibbutz uh, around Gaza, and on a music festival, which about 250 um participants in the festival were killed. Yeah. So it was a horrific, horrific um, attack on Israel, yeah. and I denounced it. Uh, but it didn't uh, happen in a vacuum. There was a, re a history behind it, mm -hmm. and we won't understand why it happened unless we understand the context. Yeah. And the context is one of 56 years of Israeli occupation. Um, and this is the most prolonged and brutal occupation, military occupation of modern times. Yeah. Israelis were utterly shocked and horrified by the Hamas uh, attack. And Israeli society became unhinged mm. uh, uh, by the scale and ferocity of this attack. Yeah. But Palestinians have, on the West Bank and Gaza have been living under Israeli occupation for 56 years. They've been subjected to horrific um, conditions, to daily violations of the basic uh, human rights and oppression. And even after Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza in 2005, yeah. Uh, it didn't give the Gazans freedom, as it claims. It put them in an open-air prison and imposed um, a blockade on Gaza long before this conflict in Gaza, the, the, long before the outbreak of the current round of fighting uh, in Gaza. So Israel is an oppressive colonial power, uh, and... Um, there is Palestinian resistance, naturally. Yeah. The Palestinian Authority in Ramallah doesn't represent any resistance. It has become the subcontractor for Israeli security. That is why um, it lacks legitimacy. Uh, whereas Hamas is the only body which represents real resistance, national resistance, to the Israeli occupation. And uh, another element in the context was Netanyahu saying to the Israeli people, the Palestinians are finished. Mm. The Palestinians are defeated. We can do whatever we like on the West Bank, mm. whatever we like, and we can continue to expand uh, settlements and put people in prison uh, without charge. Uh, and um, as for Gaza, it's contained within the prison. Mm. And on the 7th of October, the prison inmates brought, broke out of the prison. Mm. So, so that's the, the context. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there is one other reason for the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, and that is that some Arab countries have betrayed the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, 
in March 2002, there was an Arab League summit meeting in Beirut, and it adopted what became known as the Arab Peace Initiative. And the Arab Peace Initiative offers Israel full peace and normalization with all 22 members of the Arab League in return for an end of occupation and a Palestinian state on the West Bank and Gaza with a capital city in East Jerusalem. Mm. This is the deal of the century. (laughs) This is what Israel had always been asking for before 1967, Mm. and yet Israel ignored um, the Arab uh, peace initiative and continues to ignore it and to reject it to uh, this day. In 2020, um, uh, four Arab countries signed the so-called Abraham Accords with Israel. They are the United Arab Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and uh, Sudan. They completely abandoned the Arab Peace Initiative. They made peace with Israel on Netanyahu's terms, which is peace for peace rather than land for peace. So Israel didn't have to pay any price in terms of concessions to the Palestinians um, or Palestinian independence to get these four agreements. And there was strong American pressure on Saudi Arabia to join the circle of the uh, Abraham Accords. And negotiations were far advanced, and it was a matter of weeks before Saudi Arabia uh, was going to sign an agreement with Israel. Uh, And that would have been a stab in the back to the Palestinians, and that would have been the end of any Arab support for Palestinian independence. And by launching this attack, um, uh, Hamas forced Saudi Arabia to think again of whether they will really want to go down uh, this route. So the, the, the Hamas attack, for all its um, uh, terrorist uh, and um, brutal aspects, is still an assertion of Palestinian agency. The message was, we are still here, and Palestinian resistance under the leadership of Hamas is going to continue. Can I ask you about internal uh, Israeli dynamics? Now, there is a perception that a lot of what is happening in Gaza, the the sheer violence, uh, the settler activity in the West Bank, is really down to the religious right and the coalition that has been mustered together by the Likud party, by Netanyahu, people like Smotrich and others are are really uh, inflaming uh, the Palestinian territories for their own uh, benefit. We did see last year, before this crisis, uh, we did see mass demonstrations on the streets of Tel Aviv and, and elsewhere, uh, suggesting that uh, Israeli society is divided. Uh, how believable uh, do you think the, the, the belief is, or the perception is that um, if Netanyahu went... Um, the attitude towards the Palestinians would be moderated. There is the view um, that I don't share 
that Netanyahu is a moderating force within his coalition, mm-hmm. that there is the extreme, very extreme wing of the coalition, which consists of um, um, Jewish power led by um, Itamar Ben-Gvir yes. uh, and religious Zionism led by Bezalel Smotrich. Mm. They are outright racists mm. and Jewish supremacists. Yeah. They try, don't try to conceal it. And they call openly for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, not just of Gaza, but of the West Bank as well. And, and their aim, declared aim, is ethnic cleansing and the formal annexation of the West Bank. Um, uh, and Netanyahu is no moderate. Netanyahu is an uh, uh, extreme... Jewish nationalist uh, who hates Arabs uh, and would like to get rid of uh, the Arabs. His life mission is to defeat Arab national, to, to defeat Palestinian nationalism. And he has declared repeatedly that there would be no Palestinian state on his watch. And, and now that the war in Gaza has been going on for three months. The Americans are beginning to put pressure on him to agree to the day after, a political plan for the day after. And the Americans would like to bring the Palestinian Authority back in, into, into Gaza, to rule Gaza. And this is, of course, not acceptable to the people uh, uh, in Gaza yeah. to impose on them the Palestinian Authority on the back of Israeli tanks. Mm. That's a complete uh, non-starter. Mm. Um, so Netanyahu doesn't have any political plan for the day after. His war aim is to destroy Hamas, which is impossible to achieve. Yeah. Um, and indefinite Israeli security control of Gaza, but that leaves open the question of, of who will um, who, who will govern uh, Gaza. Mm. Uh, so uh, the present government, Netanyahu included, make for what is the most ultra-right, the most nationalistic, um, the most openly racist, the uh, an openly homophobic government in Israel's history. Uh, and also, this government is dominated by uh, the settlers, the settler lobby, to a greater extent than any previous Israeli government. Yeah. So one problem is the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, mm-hmm. and another problem is that the settlers now occupy the Israeli government. Mm. They are the government, and they make policy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a terrifying prospect. How about uh, the liberals and the left in Israel? Would we find a kinder policy towards the Palestinians if they were offered power? There was a mass uh, protest against Netanyahu and his judicial reform 
program. Yeah. Um, the aim of that program was to reduce the powers of the um, Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, and the driving force behind the judicial reform are the extreme parties that I've just mentioned. Yes. Because they know that the Supreme Court would rule as illegal mm -hmm. some of the measures that they want to implement, like the annexation of the West Bank. Yeah. Uh, but this is also an attack, the, the reform is also an attack on Israeli democracy because it reduces the rights of Israeli citizens and freedom of speech. Mm. So there was a huge protest against Netanyahu and the judicial reform. But once the attack of Hamas happened on the 7th of October, all the focus was changed to Gaza and to um, the hostages. Um, uh, uh, and now Netanyahu has alienated most Israelis, and the protest is against him personally, yes. because he's held responsible for the collapse of security on the 7th of October. And it was, wasn't just one attack, but his whole policy built around the notion that the Palestinians have been defeated, mm -hmm. his whole uh, uh, policy um, has collapsed. Uh, and he's held responsible in that protest against him. And he knows that um, once the fighting stops, um, the countdown to the end of his premiership will uh, will begin. Mm. So he's now fighting for political survival because as long as he is prime minister, he cannot be tried. Mm. And he has pending three serious files of corruption against him. And he knows that as when he stops being prime minister, he will stand trial, and most probably he'll be convicted and he'll end up um, uh, in prison. Mm. And the tragedy for Israel as a whole is that this uniquely self selfish um, um, and terrible man is now prolonging the war and the carnage and the destruction in Gaza for his own selfish ends. Can I ask you one final question? And, and it's really about the UK political scene. Uh, you're a Labour Party member, and uh, it seems to me that uh, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, has probably gone even further than the Conservatives in defending uh, Israel's right to defend itself uh, and to enact revenge upon the, the Gazans. How do you reflect on the current Labour Party position? Sir Keir Starmer um, is one example of a wider phenomenon which is Western hypocrisy on Israel-Palestine. Um, uh, and you see that hypocrisy uh, in the American administration during this conflict in Gaza. Uh, it's America which has stopped a ceasefire from taking place. And America is supplying Israel with war material. So America is not just complicit in Israeli war crimes, 
um, America is an active belligerent alongside Israel against the Palestinian people. Uh, most European countries are the same. Uh, the British government has always been one-sidedly pro-Israeli and totally indifferent to Palestinian rights. But Keir Starmer is an interesting example because he has um, declared himself to be an unconditional Zionist. Yeah. That's an odd position for a politician to take. Surely, and he's a lawyer, he's a human rights lawyer, surely he should make his support for Israel conditional on Israel abiding by uh, international law and Israel respecting human rights. But no, he gives Israel a free pass to do its worst. Yeah. And he was interviewed during this current crisis and um, he defended Israel uh, and he said that Israel has the right to defend itself. And the interviewer asked him, does Israel have the right to stock water and food and fuel and medical supplies to the civilian population of Gaza? And his reply was, Israel has the right to defend itself. He, he later tried to backtrack from that, but that's his basic position. Israel right or wrong, regardless of international law, regardless of the abuses, regardless of the war crimes, he is still an unconditional supporter of Israel. Uh, and one other thing about um, Sir Keir Starmer, he was asked, is Israel, do you think Israel is an apartheid state? And he said, no, he doesn't think so. But four major human rights organizations in the last three years have issued reports, detailed reports, all of which conclude that Israel is guilty of the international crime of apartheid. So it's completely preposterous for a British politician and a human rights um, advocate to be denying that Israel is an apartheid state. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by how razor sharp your memory is, uh, Professor Abishalem. How do you keep your memory so sharp? Well, uh, I'm a historian <laughs> and you can't be a historian yeah. unless you have a good memory. Yes. But also, uh, I'm old. I'm 78 years old. Wow. I've been a university teacher for 53 years. Yeah. Um, uh, and knowledge is cumulative. So for the last 40 years or so, my main research interest has been the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, but I'm not an ivory tower uh, yeah. historian. Yeah. I'm interested in what's going on around me. Uh, and there is so much mis misinformation. Mm. And in the media today, so much misinformation about Hamas, about the Palestinians, about Israel. Yeah. And I regard it as my duty to share my knowledge uh, with the wider public, not just to write scholarly work for other scholars, but to try and reach a wider public to educate them about the reality of this 
tragic conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And I'm grateful to you for giving me this opportunity to speak to to your audience. Thank you very much. I'm I'm really grateful for your time today. Thank you, Professor Abishalem. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.